You're listening to the Connect Over Coffee podcast, the show that brings you hope and inspires you to embrace the spirit of overcoming. Each month, we deliver the latest and greatest information on progress and advances in ovarian cancer screening, diagnosis, treatment, and survivorship. Now here's your host, Runsi Sen. Let's connect over coffee. Hello, Overcomers, and welcome to this episode of Connect Over Coffee. I'm Runsi, the founder of Overcome, and today we are joined by two very special and fascinating guests, Dr. Walter Antonio and Dr. Asangwa. So Dr. Marina Walter Antonio is Assistant Professor in the Department of Surgery and in the Mayo Clinic Center for Individualized Medicine Microbiome Program. Her research focuses on the role of the human microbiome in women's health. With her Today, we have Dr. Abigail Asangba, a microbiome researcher also at the Center for Individualized Medicine at Mayo Clinic. And together, they are involved in some revolutionary and potentially practice-changing work in diagnosis, prognosis, and recurrence of ovarian cancer. So we have a lot to learn as we chat with them today about gut health, overall well-being, and ovarian cancer. So grab your favorite coffee. I have mine. And join us as we talk to Dr. Walter Antonio and Dr. Asangba about everything gut microbiomes and overall health, as well as uh, ovarian cancer. And if you have any questions as we go along, please type in the comment sections below and we will get it addressed post the discussion. And as I always say, please share this information far and wide with anyone who may benefit from all these tremendous insights they're about to share with us. So with that, a huge welcome to you, Dr. Walter Antonio and Dr. Asangba to this episode of Connect Over Coffee. Such an honor to have you both with us. Thank you for having us. Really, really happy to be here. Thank you. So I have several questions for both of you. So, but and before we get into the details of what we are talking about today, could you very briefly tell us about, you know, just gut microbiome? What is it and what should we know about it? Um, so the gut microbiome is kind of the, you know, where the human microbiome uh, field started focusing on um, looking at uh, microbes, not just as enemies or pathogens or germs, um, but also thinking of microbes as something that can be uh, beneficial to our health. And in fact, that is a very important part of our life um, and performs functions that we actually need. Um, so it's, you know, it's kind of that idea that, um, you know, some people talk about that dirt isn't all bad, right? It just depends what kind of dirt we're talking about because there's some exposures that are actually very beneficial to, to your health. Um, and so the kind of research that, that we do within the microbiome is to try to understand what's the difference between those microbes that can harm you versus those that protect you and that you should foster. And also understanding that there's some who are opportunistic in the sense that they will be good for you uh, up to a certain point where you might become sick, your immune system might be debilitated for some reason, and they may take advantage of that um, and actually become adversarial at that point in time. Um, so we are interested in understanding those switches and how can we prevent that from happening and what triggers the microbes to go into that state of uh, going from friends to foes, so to speak. Wonderful introduction. Thank you. And so I have a question, follow-up question for you. Um, you have been um, quoted as saying that the, if the solution to a medical problem does not nearly or neatly fit into a particular expertise, 
then it is time to bring in interdisciplinary um, thinking. So tell us more about the groundbreaking work you do with the uh, particular emphasis on ovarian cancer. So my background is very unusual uh, in the sense that I was trained outside of the medical um, field. I was I was trained as an astrobiologist, which means I was uh, most of my career I was looking at um, understanding life on Earth in general and, and microbes in particular, and trying to find life elsewhere, missions to Mars and that sort of thing. Um, so quite a very interdisciplinary field that that includes you know geologists, biologists, chemists, um, even philosophers, and and, and all, everything in between. Um, and I was recruited to Mayo to, to really um, help bring this new emerging field at the time, the human microbiome field. And uh, the expertise that we had, uh, that we have in astrobiology is, was close to that. Um, and we could bring some of the technologies, um, some of the concepts um, into the, the medical field and try to study microbes in our body uh, from a different perspective than the standard clinical microbiology, which is more of a pathogen type of uh, inquiry, right? Um, so, you know, I always have a holistic um, view of things. Um, I am a big fan, and Abby's going to laugh at this, but, you know, I'm a big fan of Einstein. I keep saying this, right, that um, as Einstein said, you know, things should should be uh, made as simple as possible, but not simpler. And so I'm very, uh, I'm, it's very important to me that we don't miss something because my biggest fear is that we are studying something and we just notice that we forgot as something that could be important to it. And maybe the answer was there and we'll never find it if we excluded the one thing that needed to be there. So um, I always like to start with a very holistic and then eliminate as we go through, um, as we are sure that that's really not part of the story. Um, so I think, you know, um, there's been a lot of focus recently in the human genome and, you know, our genes and what they do and, and you know, immune system and everything. I think the microbiome is one such component that cannot be um, dismissed before it's investigated. Um, and so this was part of our of our um, goal here was to, um, because we've had work showing that in endometrial cancer, uh, the microbiome does seem to indicate the presence of the cancer. Uh, we thought it was actually Scott Kaufman, who is the director of the Mayo Clinic Ovarian Spore here, that was at one of my talks and, and said, you absolutely need to do this for ovarian cancer, you know, because if you find something there, that could be such, such a, a game changer type of uh, finding. And so that's what kind of motivated us to, to look into, into ovarian cancer and see if the microbiome might be a part of the story. And if it is, we really need to, to understand it and, and take it into account uh, for a variety of reasons that I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about uh, as we move on to our conversation. But that could span from, from prevention to, to treatment, really. Um, that, that's fascinating. And yes, we will get into details about that. <laughs> sure. So um, just generally speaking, though, if you were to give us a very brief highlight on, and this could be the review in terms of how um, gut microbiome impacts um, the brain and overall health, what would you share with us on that? So this is something we didn't investigate um, in this particular um, study, the last ovarian cancer study. Um, but we have we have looked into um, into some of that. Um, the the gut micro there's gut brain axis, what's called the gut brain axis, where uh, microbes in in our gut can produce what's called metabolites. They're really chemical compounds that they produce as part of their living, um, and that can um, transfer into our bloodstream. Um, and and then you know impact um, you know hormonal cycle for example for women um, or uh, even adrenaline or adrenaline kind of receptors um, that can influence 
um, a lot of or even depression at well-being uh, inflammatory systems and it can really have a um, a systemic effect um, that that can be widespread um, into into our function in general and, and also uh, brain functions uh, there, there's been lots of studies um, done on 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 things like autism, even Alzheimer's, and you know, some potential uh, impacts there. Um, these are all, you know, I would say, you know, the microbiome field is relatively new uh, still, and so there's there's still a lot to um, for us to understand, um, you know, why uh, certain things seem to associate or correlate, um, and and if that's just a, a you know, something um, that is there but without a functional meaning, or whether there is actually something that we can do to actually change that from happening or modify it. And that's a lot of the studies are starting to move into what's called the mechanistic stage, which is going from those associations to, okay, um, it's a biomarker maybe for the disease, but can we actually do, you know, is this actually doing something to us that is meaningful and that we can modify um, in, a, in a way that is beneficial to, to patients, right? Okay, and so um, in terms of, you know, uh, our overcomers, um, ovarian cancer survivors, they also may have some, comorbidities, right? Like, you know, autoimmune diseases, obesity, and certain other um, metabolic conditions, which seem to happen because of the imbalance in the uh, microbiome system within our body. So um, in just in, a, you know, briefly, can you talk to us about why, it, why does this imbalance cause these kinds of autoimmune or other kinds of diseases? And is there a way to kind of interject and stop it before it actually happens? I hope so. <laughs> I guess is the answer I have to that, but uh, it's too early for us to really know the answer to that question. Um, we, we know that microbes, you know, they, they can have uh, pro-inflammatory or anti-inflammatory properties. Um, and so they can certainly contribute to um, what, what we experience, even how we metabolize, you know, how, how we digest food, how we metabolize it, how we break it into components. Um, even drugs that we take, medicine, um, it can impact dosages uh, that you know um, that are prescribed to us, and so and, and can modify those drugs as well. So there's there's a really large span of things that microbes can do uh, that that uh, that we know impacts our health. The question is, we need to understand it well enough uh, to be able to intervene in a way that mm. it's going to be beneficial, and it's it's not an easy task because because of the complexity it's not just one microbe right the microbiome is a community of microbes every time we do an intervention say an antibiotic or something it's not just going to impact this one microbe it's going to impact the whole community and that can modify it in ways that are not entirely you know uh, beneficial some of them might might do other things than what we wanted to do um, and so that's why it takes it takes uh, some time to kind of understand um how you know how we can do this best, um, and there's some new you know uh, technologies and, and and techniques that that you know we, that are being introduced to to think about more specific ways to target microbes that are specifically you know less less broad like antibiotics, um, but it's it's still a, a very much a work in progress um, and and something that will continue to be investigated. Wonderful. So in terms of the relation between cancer and microbiomes, what would you share with us on that? Um, so there's a lot of things published at this point, I think, about cancer and microbiome. It's a field that has exploded in the last years. Um, 
you know, there's there's been study, you know, we've published in endometrial cancer, um, we've now published in ovarian, there's other groups um, published pancreatic cancer, skin cancer, you know, all over the place. Um, there are some uh, microbes that are emerging as kind of um, associated with several types of cancers, which starts to be um, very interesting to pursue as in terms of generally, maybe these microbes just aren't very good for us um, in general. But um, what what we also see is that it depends on context a lot, um, unfortunately, and that that's kind of where the complicating factors come in. Sometimes we see certain microbes associated with um, some, you know, cancer and other patients associated with the absence of some other cancer, right? And so that's when it becomes complicated. We, of course, being in the Center for Individualized Medicine, you know, uh, think that, um, you know, every person is a person. And so, you know, a microbe that might be beneficial to me might be harmful to you and vice versa. Mm -hmm. um, and to understand that, we need to understand the complexity of each of each patient and, and in the context of the rest of the microbes that are there, the rest of the communities. Um, you, what you eat, what you level of physical activity, comorbidities, that can really change the whole uh, interaction. Microbes, you know, we don't typically, I think most people don't typically think about them in this way, but microbes are also social. And so they will, uh, they will behave and adopt different functions depending on um, circumstances and who else is there. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's the part that, um, you know, we need to, to, to kind of take into account when we do our studies and, and, and basically even, you know, put microbes with our cells or human cells, but also with each other and see if they change. And they do often, depending on who else is there, they will adopt more beneficial or detrimental functions. And so that's, that's where we need to be cautious with some, sometimes the, um, some of the conclusions. Um, Okay. And so um, you are doing some work on microbiome, just staying on this uh, microbiome signatures that may lead to early detection tests for ovarian cancer and endometrial cancer. So that is huge because as you know, there still isn't a reliable screening mechanism for ovarian cancer. So this could be life-changing for a lot of people in our community, right? So tell us a little more about this intervention work that you're doing in your work, in your lab, and um, how do you see this progressing? Sure, I'll, I'll, I'll just briefly, and then I'll pass it on to, to Abby too. But, um, you know, this is still uh, very far from, you know, being a clinical test or being available to patients. Unfortunately, these things take a long time, as I said, and I know it's very frustrating. It's frustrating to us too. Um, but, but, you know, it, it's just, it's in the interest, it's the best interest of the patients to, to really make sure that where our findings are, you know, um, you know, are, are, are real and that they're not going to hurt anybody. Um, so what we're seeing is that we can, uh, in our study, what, what we basically in, investigated is that we, we saw certain micro, the presence of certain microbes, um, in, in, in the bat, in the vagina and, and also in the reproductive tract are, uh, associated with patients with ovarian cancer. Uh, even more so with early stage ovarian cancer, which is, you know, um, the most difficult one to, and, and most important one to, to detect, right? So that provides a, a great sense of uh, potential uh, to the finding that this could be used for something like that. But again, this was a study with, we had 64 patients uh, total. And so, you know, um, it's still a small cohort. And so we, you know, we need to, to kind of, um, do this in larger cohorts of patients to, to try to understand if that finding holds uh, true in different populations. 
Um, and, and if so, we can, you know, do different things that after that, you know, we can target those microbes in particular test that is instead of just seeing all the microbes you have, just the, that particular, do you have this particular combination of microbes or this particular microbe? And then um, if you do, then maybe, you know, maybe it should, should be uh, looked closer right into if there's something to be worried about or not at that point in time. But again, this is uh, kind of the first study of, in a pilot uh, discovery stage still that there's a long way to go to uh, to do something like that, I would say. Um, but Abby, I'll let you also. Just one question on this, because you said you had um, 64 patients in this study, right? Yeah. So um, we talked about briefly about how our signatures are can be uniquely different from one another. So uh, just a curious question on these 64 patients, maybe um, Abigail, you can answer this for me. Um, are, were they similar in their signatures or were they all uniquely different? I mean, can you tell us a little more about the profile? Yeah, so on a personal level, definitely we see differences uh, between patients. Uh, but what we do is we usually will group them based on a commonality. So if you're looking at, so basically we had 64 patients, 30 of them we would call the control group. Uh, these are patients that did not have ovarian cancer, but they had to undergo a hysterectomy for other uh, benign gynecological conditions. So technically they were not really a healthy kind of group anyways. Um, but, and then this other 34 were patients with ovarian cancer. So we had different groups that would, uh, would put them into, we could look at uh, patients in early stage, late stage, low grade, or uh, uh, high grade, different histologies of, of ovarian cancer, but definitely other lower level, individual level, you still see differences, individual unique signatures from each patient. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I would add the, the commonality between them is that we we took patients that were you know treatment naive. So before they so the first surgery that the, that they had, that's all the patients were in this particular circumstance. Um, but and and the profile of them is kind of similar to what you typically see in ovarian cancer, with a majority of them being late stage um, and, and and you know serious type of histology and you know that sort of profile. Um, but uh, and yeah, uh, we, we wanted to capture a population that wasn't um, hadn't been treated yet, just so we avoid confounders linked to just the, the types of treatments they received and their response and that sort of thing. So, okay. so um, uh, you're running some clinical trials, it seems, on the microbiome impact in ovarian cancer the return of ovarian cancer recurrence, as we say. So um, can you tell us about this? Uh, and, you know, because, you know, majority, as you said, majority of the ovarian cancer patients get diagnosed at an advanced stage, but not only that, their cancer almost always recurs, right? So uh, we always are more interested about, you know, to learn more about recurrent ovarian cancers in that setting. So tell us about the clinical trials that you're running in this space and what our overcomers know um, about this trial and how could they sign up if they're interested? Yeah, so so just to clarify, so this particular study that, that we published now it was not a clinical trial um, in the sense that we're not uh, testing um, things in patients. Uh, what we did though, um, and this wasn't quite planned at the time, to be honest, but you know, we just wanted to look at, could we uh, identify microbes associated with the disease or not? And that was kind of the initial goal. Um, but then we thought precisely uh, exactly what you said that, well, there's there's really a big interest in, in recurrence and, and could we predict whether patients are going to 
do well or not. And so what we did was we followed up these patients for, for two years and then four years and saw how they were doing. Um, were they responding to treatment or were they not? And so we looked at the microbiomarkers and said, could we have predicted their response um, at that time when we did that, uh, that collection? Could we have seen that this patient is going to not do well in two years or in four? And, and what we found was that we, we could actually, it was, the microbiomarkers were enough to, to give us a prediction of how well this, this, these patients were going to do uh, later on. Um, you know, and complicating factor here, of course, is that unfortunately, as it stands right now in ovarian cancer, there isn't like, you know, a lot of options uh, for, for treatment. And so, you know, the fact that we can tell their patient might not be doing very well in the future might not actually change anything right now because, you know, there's there's just not not many alternatives. Um, but it provides some, some potential for that uh, if other treatments you know, uh, appear for, for example, for patients choosing to enter clinical trials, potentially, um, if they, if they, if we have, um, you know, if this evidence is corroborated that indeed we can see this patient is probably not going to respond very well, for example, you know, might be a conversation to have with patients in the future um, to, to think about alternative options. So, um, but right now as it is, it's um, just a, a, not very actionable given the, um, what we, what we can do. Um, for these patients. But to your point, I mean, this is significant information. If you can accurately predict that this set of, you know, patients are not going to do so well in terms of treatment, you know, that their cancer is going to return regardless, or they're not going to, you know, to me as a patient, that would be information I would like to have, because then I have options to decide what I want to do going forward in the sense that do I want to introduce more toxicity into my body with more further treatments which are going to be of no use or very little use and I feel like this information could help even without even with limited treatments these days it could potentially help the providers to have that conversation with the patient community as to you know, like you said, it's not definitive, but it's something that we we are not sharing with our patients at this point in time. So this is this is absolutely groundbreaking work. So congratulations again for this, because I feel like we could empower our community so much with all of this information, not just um, what to do with their treatment pattern, but also just in terms of how to improve their overall gut microbiome, overall health and well-being to respond better to treatment. So it's holistic in my opinion. So um, Abigail, this is a question for you. Uh, again, this is, uh, you said in one of your um, papers or interviews that uh, we you found a clear pattern that reveals women with early stage ovarian cancer. They have a significantly higher accumulation of the, uh, the microbes when compared to women with later stage disease. So um, tell us a little more about this finding and what should our overcomers know and be aware of? Um, so basically, uh, Marina has already talked about, we talked about the correlation between the, uh, between cancers and ovarian, uh, and the microbiome, right? So when I think about this or where we are trying to get to, the gold standard, obviously, is something like you go and get a pap smear and then look for uh, um, HPV, which uh, would be indicative of uh, cervical cancer, right? So that would be the gold standard if we are able to get there whether it's a specific microbe that if it is present or maybe absent could indicate that 
you could be at risk or um, or you already have uh, the specific cancer. So basically, and we already know the ovarian cancer, the biggest issue is the, is the inability to screen and detect it early, right? If we could get uh, early detection, we'll be so much better off, then you can have more options. So what, what we did was to look at patients and as you know, because most of the patients that come through would have already been late stage patients, we didn't have a whole lot of early stage. But what we clearly found was that there is this uh, accumulation of uh, uh, microbes that we deem pathogenic or what you would think, uh, what would you say that are not friendly uh, microbes, right? And these were accumulated in the early stage patients. And when what we see happening is that actually first first step is when you do a comparison between what we call the, the control group and the ovarian cancer patients, you see a general accumulation of these uh, not favorable or pathogenic microbes in the ovarian cancer patients. So there's a general accumulation in that. And when you go a little further in details, it's when you realize that the accumulation actually happens a lot in the early stage. And as the patients uh, advance in disease, the stage advances, it actually goes down. So this, is, this gives us a really nice small window of opportunity, which is great if you're able to catch it on time, right? We, we know that the pathogenic microbes are there generally in the ovarian cancer patients, but it's highly uh, uh, accumulated in the early stages. So this is this would be uh, the, the what would we look for, right? So if we can be able to get that uh, accumulation before the transition. So um, unfortunately, it's not just one microbe, like what we have with endometrial cancer. Marina has already talked about that, where we can actually associate one specific microbe's presence. So that's where we are right now. We have a whole bunch of microbes that we know are pathogenic that are highly accumulated in early stage, but they tend to go away with advanced stage. So this opens up a small window of opportunity for us to be able to pursue further. And as Marina mentioned, if you're able to confirm uh, this uh, result in a larger cohort, then we can be able to move forward uh, within that direction. That is so promising. And so just, I know that this is all like work in pro progress and development, but um, once you have this uh, information, right, that, that what you talked about, how would you potentially intervene here to that small window? What would you actually do to help these patients not move into the large later state stage cancer? Yeah. Uh, I, I guess I'll take a little bit part of it and hopefully Marina would uh, take the other part. So one of the things that we, we 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 talked about, because right now we don't even know exactly when the transition happens, right? So one of the first steps or one of the first thing we need to do is to do a longitudinal kind of study and sample from those women if we have early stage ovarian cancer patients or before they even develop, which would be the greatest one, is to have multiple sampling points and to see exactly when this transition happens. And what we can do, whether uh, it's something, if obviously, so another thing to mention is these microbes, like I said, are pathogenic. And the reason we know they are pathogenic is because they've been found in other, under, uh, in different conditions, other kind of cancers or UTIs or other uh, 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 illnesses. So we already know about them. So if we can intervene, if we can prevent whether we need to just um, decrease. Um, so Marina mentioned something about how microbes take advantage, right? So one of the very classic examples that I usually give people is uh, Clostridia or Difficile. This microbe is found in the gut. Normally it's at very low uh, um, abundance and it doesn't do anything. 
And so you get antibiotics or other kind of treatments that wipe away your, that gets, and your native microbiome gets wiped off and then it takes over. And then it, that, that's when it becomes problematic, right? So these microbes could be present natively, not doing much because they are in low abundance. And then what microbes you need in your reproductive tract that protect you if they get wiped away due to whether it's a disease condition or some other reason, then they take over. So that's what we need to find out, right? That's what we need to find out, what causes them to accumulate and how do we prevent that from actually happening? So Marina can add more. Yeah, I mean, just just to um, go directly to your question, which is a great one, um, you know, it's very challenging um, because ovarian cancer doesn't have um, risk factors really identified. And so identifying the population that you would do this um, to is, is difficult. So pap smears, for example, you know, are introduced to all women, all right? Um, and everybody does it. Um, and, you know, ovarian cancer, uh, fortunately, is not as common uh, of a type of cancer for women to develop. So there's the question, you know, we have to balance between, um, you know, wanting, uh, obviously, to, to, to catch um, patients with early uh, ovarian cancer because their prognosis is going to be much better. Um, and putting all women or, you know, through something like that as screening for ovarian cancer, which, you know, it's costly from a medical care perspective and it causes anxiety and all kinds of things, right, that people uh, have to go through. Is this screening for breast cancer, for example, is justified as well because of the prevalence of, of cancer. So um, ovarian is a, is a difficult situation um, and has been very difficult to manage clinically because of this. Um, because it, it's, it's, you know, you have to balance the, you know, we have, I think uh, in 2022, there was close to 20,000 um, new cases of, of ovarian cancer, you know, 70% uh, of them are late stage. Uh, you know, you have to think about how, how what, you know, what can we do um, uh, besides, you know, screening the whole population for something that is not gonna be that common to, to catch, fortunately, um, but understanding that can be life-saving for those few women. That, that we do would be able to catch. Um, and this is a decision that, you know, it, um, it's done with, with, you know, clinicians, with, uh, with patients and, and, and everybody involved to think about the, the pros and cons of something like this, how strong, you know, it depends a lot on how well the test performs to, how specific is it um, to the, to, you know, if the microbe, for example, as Abby was mentioning, um, can be present, you know, this is, for example, the story uh, of Helicobacter pylori, right, which uh, is the microbe associated with stomach cancer. This one, for example, 50% of us have it. And, you know, we don't have stomach cancer, most of us, right? But what happens is that from the patients who do develop stomach cancer, 90% of them have it. So you're in a situation where, well, um, just testing for it over, you know, overall isn't really helpful. Um, but we do know it does increase your risk to cancer. And if, you know, so it, it's a, something to pay attention to. Um, one of the things that we're kind of strong on, again, being an, an individualized medicine field as well, is to, to empower the patient to make their own decisions uh, if they can. And so, um, you know, providing potentially these kinds of tests um, that that could be, uh, you know, acquired at Walgreens or whatever, you know, some some, some kind of that people could um, could access if they want to do it. Um, you know, it's an option. Um, but again, it is complicated. <laughs> it's a very complicated uh, question um, because of the epidemiology of, of the cancer. 
And, you know, I was just thinking as you were speaking that, yes, I mean, you know, population wide testing is probably not the answer at this point in time, because it may just create more problems than it will solve. But, right. you know, for situations like in my case, okay, my mom passed away from ovarian cancer. So oh. I have very strong family history, yet I am BRCA negative, right? So, so the doctors would always tell me that, or the healthcare team that I have that, okay, there's no need for any surveillance in your case because you're already BRCA negative. Again, however, we know that we, I have personally spoken to patients who um, did not carry the mutation, but they had family history, but they developed ovarian cancer a few years later. So, there is no answer to this, you know, right? How did that happen if there is no genetic mutation, but there is family history? So in cases like mine, for example, I mean, checking my microbiome health every week or people like us could be something to start with. And if we see some colonization that you were talking about and some, you know, activity that is abnormal, then there is this opportunity to catch the, the cancer early. So, I mean, lots of avenues, right? So that's that's a great idea, actually. <laughs> um, you know, I I think your case is 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 spot on on something that could definitely have an application for 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 pay. You know, obviously, it is a risk factor if you have someone in your family that that has developed the disease. Um, being BRCA negative is great, um, but yeah, uh, I think for those patients that would like to still try to understand whether they are still at risk despite the negative test, genetic test. Um, and if the microbiome can fill that gap, um, I would, that would be amazing. I, I think that that could be. Exactly. Uh, exactly. I was thinking about that as you were speaking, that I can see an application right here. I mean, individualized to people like us who have family history, but do not carry the mutation, but we still want to know and be on top of, you know, any symptoms to come or any disease to come because we have that strong link to ovarian cancer. So this is why patient advocates are so important to these discussions. I mean, I, I seriously, yeah. Uh, this this is a great idea. I, Thank yeah. you. Um, so, um, Abby, you may have, and pardon my knowledge on this, but but you may have talked about this already. But we talked, we were, you were talking about the um, the activity that you know patients have at the early stage of the, on their microbiomes that is kind of different and separate from later stage. So I was reading about this um, colonization of disease causing bacteria. So is it the one and the same thing or um, is it different? And I mean, does this colonization look similar in all patients with ovarian cancer or, or their individual uniqueness that we need to talk about? Or have we already covered this? Whether the bacterial signal is the same across the patients is that what you're? Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm asking. Yeah, uh, statistically similar. Yeah, um, I would right. say that. So, yeah, every single person, every single individual is going to have an individual profile that is fairly unique um, for that point in time. It also changes through time, so that's another complication thing we need to deal with. But which is why longitudinal studies are important. But um, but then you know the types of tests that Abby run and and uh, is to uh, you know, determine whether there's statistics called statistical significance, right? Whether that, um, whether there are particular microbial signatures that are common across all the patients with cancer that are not present in patients without cancer. And that's when you 
kind of highlight that those microbes, you know, are always there when there's trouble and are rarely there when there isn't. And so uh, that becomes kind of a pattern um, that, that we identify as, as, um, as, as unique to that group of patients. Yeah. So um, thank you for that. So uh, generally, when I'm reading about, you know, gut health and overall health, you know, there's always this um, suggestions on adding more fiber, more fermented foods into your diet to um, be able to, you know, improve our over, overall gut health. So do you have any guidance on this that you could share with our overcomers? Because I feel like you know, I mean, this is something that we all can do. It's not just when you are diagnosed with a type of disease, but all we can all collectively work together to kind of improve our gut health. So what is the role of fermented foods or fiber, if you could shed some light on that? Um, so again, uh, seems to be a little individual, you know, in, in talking with, with patients and some research studies that have, have been done, um, you know, some patients benefit from those, some patients don't uh, benefit. Um, and so what, you know, a typical, you know, clinicians tend to say is try it. And if it works for you, that's great. Keep doing it. If it doesn't work, stop it and do something else. Um, and it's kind of a trial and error because we don't quite understand um, why is it that some people, you know, and there's ongoing studies and we, we gain more knowledge as we go, but Right now, there's there's no definitive knowledge on on knowing whether that's going to be helpful or not. You know, for ovarian cancer in particular, one thing that we see is is uh, is that a lot of the patients are actually healthy. Um, otherwise, right? They're even athletes. They're they're young. Uh, they're healthy. They do everything. Um, you know, um, that they that to 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 have good health and and be in good status. And despite that, they they develop uh, this this terrible disease. So it you know. It's difficult to say what um, what could it could they have done better. I mean, it's really uh, I I can't think of anything. Most of the patients I, I I look into their profile is like I don't know. It's very frustrating for them and, and us, um, and that's why we we kind of want to try to help. You know, maybe 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 the microbiome is a contributor to that, and that that was kind of our our idea to try to incorporate that also into the what's already known. Uh, and maybe that's a factor that we can modify and contribute and maybe some probiotics, it could be, you know, vaginal probiotics or, or gut microbiome, gut probiotics or prebiotics. There's also prebiotics, which are you know, food for the microbes, not for us, but for feeds the microbes that we are interested in, in retaining. Um, and, and other, there's there's a phage therapies now also uh, as, as options. So there's several interventional options that could be tried. If we do see that uh, the microbes are relevant to the disease. Um, there's there's several tools we can utilize to try to modify it in the right way, um, which could be what you just described, or it could be something else. Um, but it, it's it's something to certainly investigate. So what you what I heard you say is that there is no harm in trying it because in certain situations and certain patients they can be more effective than the others. But um, there is in general no harm to trying the you know uh, to you know improve your overall um, gut health with more fiber and more fermented foods and prebiotics as you mentioned that's also important. So my my question was because we get a lot of questions from our overcomers on supplements right while they're going through mm -hmm. And there's always this debate on what supplement is actually good for you versus what 
the supplements you may want to avoid while going through treatment for ovarian cancer. And there never seems to be a definitive answer. I think to your point, it just goes back to what the patient is responding to that defines what works for him or her. Yeah, I, I would just add something to that. So, you know, if you're if you're feeling well and, uh, you know, it, it, it can take you out of that state or that balance. So, you know, kind of what you typically say, don't try to fix what's not broken, right? So if you're you're feeling fine, you're probably fine. But if you're experiencing issues, and I know a lot of the treatments, they cause um, a very severe effect, um, sometimes uh, gut symptoms, and, and that can actually interfere with the treatment um, and stop it altogether because they're very, very debilitating. Um, what I would say is, you know, talk to your physician. Um, what's really important is that the clinical team, whoever is, is taking care of the patient knows what you're doing. Um, there are some compounds and there are some uh, some of those, you know, even over the counter uh, products that can um, potentially interfere um, with with the treatments you're receiving from your doctor. So, um, you know, it's not a, a question of, you know, can you can you not do it? I think it, they need to know. Um, it helps them understand what what they're dealing with and what else might interfere with what they're trying to do. Um, you know, some of them can have an impact on your immune system. For example, um, it, it depends on, on the on the you know product, um, and so that's that can become very relevant for for the doctors. One to to try to help you, and to also understand. You know, if you're one of those big you know uh, success cases that you know somehow um, managed to defile odds and and do very well with the treatment when the expectation was very poor. That becomes a very interesting, uh, you become a very interesting, uh, valuable person to study uh, from a clinical perspective because we want to replicate that, right? We want to make sure that whatever it is that you did worked so well, um, we would want to understand why. Um, and so that can also help other people. So I would really encourage people to talk to their physicians about what else they're doing uh, so that we can we can know uh, and we can, we can study um, these things because they, they can lead to very very, very big uh, breakthroughs for, for many people. Absolutely. And to your point, I just wanted to add a quick thing. Uh, Marina's already said those before and coming from the Center for Individualized Medicine, one thing that is becoming clearer is the fact that it's not one size fits all. Marina already mentioned it. It's your person as a whole from your genetics, your microbiome to your lifestyle choices. So what might work for patient A might not work for patient B. So definitely getting all your answers and working with your physician or your whoever is uh, like whoever is involved Definitely. So you can't say because one patient is doing well on this supplement, that might work for you. It could be a completely different case for you. Just Absolutely. Quick. And that is where we need to progress on this individualized, you know, therapies, not just for cancer, for everything, right? And, you know, the, I asked this question in one of my interviews with another doctor is like the role of AI, right? It's going to be huge. I mean, it is already huge, but I see that, you know, AI can intervene in such ways to transform the way we offer medical care these days, I mean, and into the future. So lot, it's lots of promising breakthroughs to come, it seems, uh, which, you know, make us excited. So, um, you know, uh, you already talked about talking to your doctors and your healthcare teams when you're going through treatment about these supplements and just sharing information so that, you know, uh, we can have a better process in learning and understanding. Um, so in general, though, um, 
you know, if anyone wants to test their gut health, cancer or no cancer, right? I mean, are there any specific tests that need to be ordered? Because I know from my personal experience, I mean, our doctors, my doctors, they never talk to me about this. So um, then, you know, for someone newly diagnosed or someone even going through recurrence or whatever the stage of ovarian cancer, or like I said, even like the general population, if we are interested in to learn more about our microbiomes and our health and our signatures. Are there tests that we could potentially advocate for ourselves to, to order with our physicians? Yeah, so I mean, the reason why why clinicians aren't, um, you know, advising to do do those things right now or it's because it's not a clinical test, right? So we, because it's, it's in a research realm, um, we're not quite sure what it means <laughs> yet. Um, so, you know, there's actually many, many companies that, that are offer, um, such tests and that, you know, people, uh, can do, uh, for their own understanding and their own information. And it's something that if you want, you can share with your doctor if they, if they want to, you know, look into that with you. But, but again, it's, it's research. Um, there's no clinical action that can be really, um, driven by it right now and again that's why we do these studies and, and have clinical trials and, and and all these things to try to um to, you know to know whether we can do an intervention that is safe and that is helpful right that's the two things that we need to make sure um first safety and second that that, it, that it's helpful and it's not wasteful um so you know but for your own information i mean it's like the right people do 23 and me and that sort of thing like they want to know about their you know information is not necessarily something actionable uh, right away, but it can become in the future, right? So um, that's always, again, for, for our purposes and from a research perspective, uh, we that's great for, for us as accumulated knowledge that we get to know about people, especially if, uh, there's some patients that are very committed to this and will do uh, the repeated sampling through time, uh, like when they feel good, when they feel bad, after they, they recover, that that information from a research perspective is extremely valuable for us to understand like and see uh, how you look like when you're healthy, how you look like when you get sick and how you look like when you recover versus when you don't. Um, that can be extremely valuable information for us to have and, and, and then utilize it to really develop potential clinical tests out of it. So, um, you know, I, uh, again, not not something clinically actionable for the most part right now, but uh, but might become and because of those sorts of things. Yeah. And, and the thing is, you know, one step at a time. Right. I mean, but it, it, this has so much promise to offer. I feel like we all should know more about our gut health, you know, the cancer or no cancer, because it could have some potentially um, groundbreaking, you know, uh, changes to bring. So um, generally, though, I mean, I know this is a this is a this is a strong question for the lack of a better word, but just improving gut health. And, and you know, this is not, I mean, I've heard from many functional medicine doctors too, that gut health is the end all and be all on, of, of everything. And it can actually repair, it can restore, it can even reverse uh, diseases and not just cancer, but generally like, you know, all autoimmune conditions and such. I've read a few books on that. So um, how, how far, is this true? I mean, like, can improving gut health actually reverse disease or you can go into remission forever? I mean, I know this is all in research setting, all in the you know learning phase, but any thoughts that you could share with us uh, would be appreciated. 
Yeah, again, I mean, early on to know. I know there's a lot of research studies, though, in that direction to try to understand that and and, and give an answer to to those questions. You know, uh, we all tend to, you know, when, when we have these discoveries and, and kind of, and there's a few other groups make great discoveries, you think of the Holy Grail, and this is going to be like eternal life for everybody and, you know, solve all the world problems. It's often not the case, unfortunately, right? And, but they might solve uh, the, the problems of a lot of people um, uh, and very significant ones. So, and, and you know, that's worth pursuing and and seeing what what we can do with it and how far we can uh, we can apply it um, to patients. But the biggest fear, I think, that's why researchers tend to be very cautious, is because we are very afraid of hurting people, right? Or, of of uh, conclusions, you know, maybe not, you know, uh, ending up not not really. Uh, holding up to, to, to other, you know, follow-up studies and replicate replications of studies. And then, um, you know, it could cause harm to patients or false hope and that sort of thing. It's not good. Right. So we, we want to be cautious with, with what, what our findings are telling us, um, and, and move as fast as we can, but, um, but still being always keeping that, you know, thing in mind that patients are on the other end and that, um, you know, we do receive on occasion, you know, emails from patients directly and that sort of thing. And it's always very um, rewarding to receive those emails and, 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 and try to help them. But we feel a great sense of responsibility to not give false leads or false hopes to people either because they have the right to also know what the truth is and, and you know, um, how close we are to these things. It's still a, a, a ways to go, right? Most, most, most discoveries in medicine you know, um, from from pilots to, you know, being available to patients, if everything goes right, it takes about 10 years <laughs> on average, right, for that to happen. And that's if everything goes right, which is usually not the case. So um, a lot of things we have to, to redo uh, that looks different, maybe in this population doesn't work this way. And then um, you have to test in different ways and, and then taste safety. Maybe that doesn't pass the safety, you know, maybe it is useful for some people, but it's very dangerous for others. So, you know, um, again, we have to weigh all of that um, before before giving that to patients, which you know is a big big responsibility too. Um, yeah, and I add a quick thing. Sorry, um, just wanted to add that also, uh, like Marina mentioned, most of the studies that we see, and you probably if you read uh, microbiome papers and with uh, with diseases of any kind, mostly what you see them use is the word this association, right? So there is an association between specific microbes and the specific disease. But one of the biggest uh, problems right now is even trying to figure out did this disease condition result in the microbiome signatures you're seeing. Or did those microbiome signatures actually lead uh, uh, led to that disease, right? So you need to figure that out first. I know now we are moving to the area where or, or times where people are actually looking at the me mechanistics um, of how these things happen, how exactly. Like we are trying to understand better how the microbe that we are interested in when it comes to endometrial cancer, how it might actually be doing what we think is doing, right? So people are getting there. But until you're able to figure these things out, you can't just say just because you see this microbe and it's always there when the specific disease is there, though. So it's causing it. It could be as a result of the disease. So you can't just try to remove that microbe or add it on there to see whether it changes everything. So it takes a while, but hopefully we'll get there. Absolutely. But, you know, this is great work that you guys are doing and, you know, it has answered quite a few questions in my head already. And so, you know, let's see what the next five years 
does to, you know, where, where you continue to progress your work, where we find more and more information, where we can actually make it actionable for our, you know, community going forward. So this is a great, great start. I mean, a fascinating discovery and you know the work that you that you both have done so congratulations on that we are we'll stay tuned and and to learn more about how this becomes goes from the uh, bench to bedside and we can actually um start applying your knowledge um you know if not to population-wide testing but even to people like us that you know, could benefit. I can see myself, I can just speak for myself, but I will say that this kind of information will probably help me as, as, as a person who's invested in her own health. And we, I want to know more, especially I have a family history. So if there is any activity that looks abnormal, then, then that's something to act upon versus just sit and wait for something to happen, you know? Um, so thank you. I for understand. And I know, I know that, yeah, that the sit and wait, it's a very frustrating thing for, for a lot of patients and they rather know uh, than, than do that. And so I, I, no, I appreciate that insight because that's actually a, a great idea to focus on a population like that. And that, that might be very, very impactful. So, yeah, especially if there are no like, you know, direct correlation, but there is a strong link. I mean, it's not it's not even your, you know, it's your mom or your sister is the first degree relative. So so that would be great. I, I I'm I'll sign up if there's <laughs> <laughs> um, Thank you. So I have asked so many questions to you. Um, is there anything that I have missed that, you know, and of course I'm learning with you. So pardon my, uh, you know, uh, there are certain things that I'm also just kind of opening my eyes to. So what have I missed that asking you that you would like to share with us? I, I would just like to say that, you know, a, a really huge thank you to you for, for paying attention to these, to, to this. Um, and, and supporting and advocating for the cause. Um, I think, you know, it, it's people like you that make it all possible. We, we couldn't do it without, you know, support from, um, from, from people and, and funding agencies and, you know, the Mayo Clinic uh, sport here, ovarian sport and MOCA, Minnesota Ovarian Cancer Alliance, who really invested in uh, a, a blind shot into the funding this right, and say, well, it's okay, let's see, why not? Um, you know, these are very difficult studies to fund. So, you know, um, we appreciate that as we appreciate also, you know, we, we know how hard it is uh, when we approach, you know, patients who, you know, have a very difficult diagnosis, either of a family member or their own, uh, to participate in research studies, knowing that it's very unlikely that it will help them. Um, and despite that, they, uh, they enroll and they, they, you know, they participate in the study and, and being in a very difficult situation uh, at that point in time. And so we really appreciate that, um, you know. Uh, we we ask for funny things sometimes like vaginal swabs, um, you know, self-collected vaginal swabs at home. Uh, you know, this is something we're probably going to start doing to try to monitor to see if we can actually uh, see something of significance in particular patients. Um, you know, uh, there we try not to do invasive testings so that, you know, it can be more patient-centered and that people can do those tests at home and just send it in. Um, you know, so we appreciate anybody um, who's willing to um, to do those things. They can really help us. Uh, develop tests that that may be um, maybe uh, you know uh, in shelves at some point uh, for people that that want to rather rather know than than sit and wait as you as you as you said um, we want to help those patients uh, provide more clarity into their own individual situation. So. 
Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing all your insights. Just in closing, because I asked this question to all my episode guests, uh, what message of overcoming would you like to share with our audience that listening today? Happy. <laughs> Anything you want to say to encourage and inspire our community of survivors and overcomers, audience, followers globally? Well, uh, you know, you're a survivor. You already said it. You're, you already did it. Um, you already uh, overcame. And I love the, the the name, by the way, overcome. That's, that's great. Um, you know, it, it, this this is a, a really a, a terrible disease um, to to deal with. Uh, very frustrating. Uh, again, seeing a lot of patients who are, you know, have done everything right in their whole life and, and are diagnosed with such something that is so so difficult to treat and overcome. Um, but, but, you know, a lot of people do, um, and, and, that, that's, that's, that's you, if you're talking here, that's you. Um, and, and so, you know, you already, you already overcame, uh, whatever happened to you and we're here to really try to help with that. Um, you know, tomorrow could be me, it could be anybody. Right. Um, so we're here to try to try to help understand, um, why this happened to you, I guess. And, and can we change that? Can we, can we help you through that journey of, um, you know, uh, preventing it would be obviously. I'd rather not have any can overcare cancer patient ever again uh, than than treat those that already have it. So you know, prevention is always my first goal. But um, but you know, uh, if we can't prevent it, uh, we really want to make it uh, something easier to to survive, um, easier than than what all all the patients have to go through, uh, which is just horrible. Um, but you know, there's there's a lot of researchers and, and clinicians invested in in, in in helping and and things that have been going a lot better, you know, than they have been in the past. Uh, survival rates are much better now than they used to be, um, and will continue to improve until, um, you know, we don't have to worry so much about this disease. Um, so we're, we'll do our best. Yeah. yeah, I would just say that. Well, first of all, thank you for having us. Thank you for all the awareness that you create. Uh, we researchers, I feel like the best place to uh, to start as a researcher, if, if, it, if it's something that is personal to you, um, maybe not all of us have gone through those, uh, those uh, have had family members or even ourselves go through those kind of cancers, but having patients or family members of patients who've gone through this, and this is coming from a very personal place for you and having to advocate and create an awareness and just let people know. Until I started working with Marina and started looking at ovarian cancer, I had no clue that this was just, oh my goodness. And it's been an emotional journey, just uh, following closely on what this disease is, is all about and how helpless patients feel, how helpless researchers feel just because it's that hard. But thank you for your work. Thank you for creating the awareness. Thank you for being there for patients and advocating for patients. And we try for my end to do everything possible to reduce the number of patients, like Marina said, prevention obviously is the best, uh, would be the best choice. But if we cannot prevent, then how, but how well we can do to try to um, make it easier for patients to recover and not have any recurrences or um, however we can help. So thank you for helping us. Thank you, Abigail. Okay. That was a beautiful yep. message. And 
as I as we say at Overcome that typically we say that one in 78 women get ovarian cancer during their lifetime. We want to see zero in 78 from one to zero. It doesn't look like a very big deal, does it? But it actually, to your point, it is a complex and very, very difficult disease to treat. But I'm confident that we will get there from one to zero you know, someday in the future with your work and your brilliant work, like, you know, all the other researchers that are involved in this space. So thank you very much for sharing your knowledge and your insights with our audience today. This was a greatly fascinating conversation. Um, we thank you for your time and Overcomers will be back with the next episode of Connect Over Coffee very soon. Until then, you keep overcoming. Thank you and bye. Thank you for joining us. Make sure you never miss an episode by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by our sponsors, GSK and Clovis Oncology, and by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Be sure to tune in for our next episode. Cheers to overcoming.